2: thanks for downloading another episode of the christian humanist podcast my name is nathan gilmore and i'm a professor of english at emmanuel college in franklin springs georgia Uh, i'm joined on the line today by dr david grubbs an assistant professor of english at houston baptist university david how are things
0: things are well
2: very good very good and also coming to you is dr michael farmer uh he is in woodstock and michael uh I have to think that it's about 96 degrees there because that's what it is here.
1: It is, but by the time this episode airs, it's going to be almost fallish in terms of the weather. I can't wait.
2: I'll believe it when I see it. Well, friends, uh, we got lots of things going on on the network. One thing is uh, Christian Feminist Podcast, I forgot to mention this last week, has a new episode on uh, gaming and specifically board games. Uh, and the Christian community—that was a very interesting listen. Listen, pardon me. Grubbs, weren't you supposed uh, we all, to be
1: on that episode?
0: I was supposed to be on that episode. I really wanted to be, um, but it was the day that the rains came down and the floods came up, and uh, our the power at our house uh, became unreliable, and it was it was yeah, I, it was just not going to be a good a good. Thing for me to be on there. Uh, if I was just going to be like cutting in and out, it wouldn't it, have it been worth it for me to be there. So you know, I, I, I look forward to listening to that one and uh, apologies for not being able to participate, but uh, that, that sounded like a, like it was going to be a fun conversation. and I look forward to listening to that fun conversation. That doesn't include me, but that's fine.
2: It was a fun episode. We also have a new uh, core curriculum on the Iliad. Uh, Michael, what book will we be up to when this episode drops?
1: I think seven through nine.
2: Sounds like yeah. a winner. Uh, and then, uh, they got some schmuck to come on, uh, before they were live and talk about Black Cauldron, but I think we've already talked about that, so we don't need to worry about that anymore. Uh, anything else <laughs> on the network, guys? I think that's it.
0: I have some profile books, but they're not for, Not they're not till... Significantly later in the semester, so.
2: Right. One thing that I will say is that now that we are in October, uh, listeners should be uh, watching the internet and your RSS feeds for the annual Christian Humanist Radio Network crossover. Uh, Michael, are we revealing yet what we? Oh, yeah, you revealed on Facebook what we're doing. So, what are we doing for our Halloween crossover this year, Michael?
1: We're reading five Stephen King books. Uh, I know we're reading Misery because I just read it today. We're reading Carrie revival the shining and pet cemetery
2: so listeners be sure to uh stay tuned for that but on this show today uh we are talking about uh an event from 50 years ago i like to do these uh anniversary episodes and it's something that uh holds a certain fascination for me not only in its own right but uh because of the uh generational questions it brings up and that is uh woodstock So, Michael, you're our historian of rock and roll, so what were the material conditions that made Woodstock happen in 1969? Whose idea was it to have a music festival? Whose idea was it to have a music festival in the middle of farm country? How did they get bands to show up? How did 400,000 people know how to get there without GPS?
1: Yeah, it was dreamed up by four 20-somethings. I don't think any of them was older than 27. Uh, John Roberts, not the Supreme Court Justice, Uh, Joel Rosenman, Artie Kornfeld, and Michael Lang. Of those four guys, Kornfeld was a vice president at Capitol Records. Lang was a festival organizer. I think he'd organized some big rock festival in Miami, Florida. And then Roberts and Rosenman were two entrepreneurs from New York City. The first band to sign on was Credence Clearwater Revival, uh, which is a little bit ironic because Credence was... Probably the least hippie band of that era. I mean, if you're if you're thinking about the 1960s and, and popular rock music, I can't think of anybody who has less in common with the hippies than Creedence. They were a deeply blue-collar band. They didn't even do drugs, and yet they're the first ones who sign on for Woodstock. And um, in so doing, they're the ones who make Woodstock possible because they were popular enough that when other bands saw that they'd signed up, they signed up too. So we kind of owe it to Creedence. And I think those two facts really complicate our view of Woodstock uh, because it is created by entrepreneurs to make a great deal of money, and it is first supported by whatever the opposite of hippies is. Um, So we should keep that in mind as we go forward and kind of deal with the mythology of Woodstock. This was a money-making enterprise, first and foremost. Uh, It was supposed to be held in an industrial park in Wallkill, New York, a a town I know absolutely nothing about except that it was supposed to be the site of Woodstock. Uh but the town officials there decided after arrangements had already been made that they didn't want to be a part of it. And so at the last minute, I think there was a month before the before the concert was supposed to begin, it moved to a farm in the Catskills, just outside of Bethel, New York. And that last-minute move presented some real problems, which, again, contribute to our view of Woodstock as a kind of hippie paradise. They didn't have time to build a fence and the stage, so they focused, I think, probably wisely on the stage. And because they couldn't keep people out without a fence, the concert became free. And, in fact, the promoters lost an enormous amount of money, I think a million dollars, which 50 years ago was you know, even more money than it is now. They, they lost a lot of money on the festival and they only made it back because they own the footage rights to the concert film. So this was a big bust financially until the mythology started happening and then it became very lucrative. They expected 50,000 people to come 2 days before the festival, twice that many tickets had been sold and somewhere between 400,000 and 500,000 people ended up coming. They jammed all the roads around Bethel, a small town in upstate New York's not really built to to handle half a million people showing up all at once. And the the amazing thing about Woodstock is there really wasn't very much violence there despite all these people being there, despite the the concert promoters being woefully unprepared to handle that number of people. It helped that so many of them were on psychedelic drugs and having sex with one another. I, I think that probably is one reason why more <laughs> violence didn't happen.
2: You know, take of all the, the drugs you off. can
1: take, a- acid's probably not going to be one that's going to make you pull a knife on somebody. 32 bands and artists performed, <laughs> uh, which is a, a very small number by any contemporary standard. Uh, Richie Havens opened the festival at 5 p.m. on Friday, August the 15th. It went all night the next day. So the next day, Saturday the 16th, began at noon and ended Sunday morning at 9. And uh, poor CCR had to play the 3 a.m. slot. And supposedly they were very bitter about this and had really nothing good to say about Woodstock. Although, again, I mean, their whole thing doesn't fit in very well with the whole thing of what that festival became. Jimi Hendrix famously closes the festival early Monday morning. He plays a famous rendition of The Star-Spangled Banner. You've probably heard it. Um, he claims, uh, claimed, he's dead now, but he, he claimed that he meant it unironically, that this wasn't this wasn't an anti-patriotic thing. You know, I, I think he was in the Marines or maybe the Navy. He, uh, he, was, he was pretty patriotic, and he meant that, the, that version of The Star-Spangled Banner, which to some extent is the kind of icon of Woodstock. He meant that to be completely straight. The other thing I want to call attention to, just in terms of how all of this fits into the counterculture, is a group called sha Have you guys heard of sha Oh, yeah. sha a phrase. is a 50s nostalgic act made up of members of the Columbia University a cappella group. Uh, it was a huge hit. Huh. And, and I think that shows something important, which is that Woodstock was not entirely forward-looking. The baby boomers have always been terribly nostalgic, even at this event that, depending on who you ask, sums up their generation, they're already looking backward to their childhood. So um, I I don't know what to make of that, but I think it's interesting. And then lastly, a number of very famous artists didn't want to play. Uh, So they were all invited. Uh, Simon and Garfunkel didn't play there. The Rolling Stones didn't. The Doors didn't. John Lennon. And most oddly, or maybe not oddly, given his relationship to the counterculture in 1969, Bob Dylan didn't want to play. And that that is especially telling to me because he very famously had moved to Woodstock uh, just a few years earlier. So he's in the neighborhood and still doesn't want to come, uh, such is his disgust with the counterculture by 1969. What did I leave out, Nathan?
2: No, I mean, I I think that's a very good historical survey. And, you know, again, like you said, I mean, you know, because it has this uh, counterculture mythology built up around it that we're going to discuss at some length, uh, we often forget that it was organized. It was put on as a music festival to sell tickets, make money, so on and so forth. The fact that it didn't was not for lack of trying.
1: Right. It's its, it's failure to, to make money that made it what it is, which is, uh, uh, there's something kind of beautiful about that uh, and kind of funny.
2: Indeed. Well, David, another artist who was not there uh, was Joni Mitchell, <laughs> uh, who wrote the famous song Woodstock that uh, Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young recorded and brought the festival to some prominence. Uh, I want to start with this little bit of a musical legend. What does it add to the historical event?
0: So, I had never heard this song before. This is how disengaged I am from Woodstock or its myth or any of it. Uh, I have heard the Jimi Hendrix National Anthem. So, proceeding here. Uh, I came upon a child of God who was walking along the road... So uh, we start off with this this image of pilgrimage, right? Uh, associated with youth, uh, it's a it's a traveler walking along the road headed for a destination. The traveler is also uh, a a child, a child of God. Um, so connection to connection to God, but also um, youth. Asked him where he was going, and he's going to... How do you even say that name, you guys? Yasker.
2: In, in the song, it's Yasger's Farm.
0: Yasger's Farm. Yeah, so he's going to Yasger's Farm. I had to look that up, and I was like, oh, wow, that's not some weird symbolic theme. It's actually the name of the guy who owned the farm. There you go. I was expecting something else. I don't, I don't know. That's how unplugged I am from this. Uh, he's going to join in a rock and roll band and camp out on the land... And I'm gonna go try and get my soul free, all right? Well, w- Woodstock was not that the it was not that long a concert, uh, but the song is already presenting it as if it's it's some kind of a, a permanent uh, site of pilgrimage. It's it's a it's a new settlement. It's a new uh, location where people can go um, who are seeking uh, the sort of enlightenment that I imagine many folks were, um, where rock and roll is joined to a kind of spirituality, and then you have the chorus: um, We are stardust, uh, billion-year-old carbon, golden. Uh, we are golden. We've got our soul, and we've got to get ourselves back to the garden. Um, and in that chorus, there's that balance between uh, one story of origins um, that is still romanticized. Right, we are stardust, the, the the naturalistic cosmogony, and then on the other side, we've got to get ourselves back to the garden. That reference to Eden, um, uh, an acknowledgement of corruption that's happened, and a desire to return back to. Uh, the pristine pre-corrupt uh, condition. Uh, the next verse, uh, the, the, the singer, the, the speaker in the, in the, in the lyrics, uh, joins the pilgrim to lose the smog and uh, to become a cog in something turning. Um, they just want to be a part of something bigger than themselves. Maybe it's the time of year, maybe it's the time of man. All right, so. A shifting to uh, from from a season of the year to uh, I guess a, a season of history um, maybe maybe we are maybe even making some kind of I guess Hegelian move I don't know I don't know who I am but you know life is for learning and then we have the chorus and then in Woodstock half a million strong everywhere there was song and celebration and then The dream. I dreamed that the bombers were riding shotgun shotgun in the sky and were turning into butterflies above our nation. Um, The idea that somehow through this pursuit of this pilgrimage of rock and roll drug spirituality, um, they're also going to bring about this uh, systemic change in the world um, that's specifically connected to um, ending war. Changing bombers into butterflies. Um, Yeah, I mean this is this is just the stuff of mythology, and the way that it's framed here as as journey, as site of pilgrimage, as uh, transformation, as a movement of the young who are ideal and want to resist not in a violent way, but in a Uh, an artistic way, a beautiful way, a spiritual way, in order to make the world better. Um, Which, pictures of Woodstock at the end of the concert, um, I don't know, don't quite look as much like the myth, but, you know, myths aren't made of the mud that's left afterwards. How should I expand this? What else should I be bringing to this?
1: A couple of interesting facts about Joni Mitchell and this song. She was not there. She was not at Woodstock. Instead of going, she went and performed on the Dick Cavett show that night in New York City. I think she might have watched part of this on television. I I don't know how much of it was televised. And the other thing about her is despite this song, she never really accepted the hippie mythos. Um, She has a song called Blue from her album of the same name, which is two years after Woodstock. And I I can't help but read this as a rejection of that whole mythos. um, She says, well, there's so many sinking now. you got to keep thinking. You can make it through these waves. Acid booze and ass, needles, guns, and grass, lots of laughs, lots of laughs. Everybody's saying that hell's the hippest way to go. Well, I don't think so. So she's – she, I mean, in 1971, you kind of have the whole hippie hangover thing anyway because you have Altamont, which I know we're going to talk about in a minute, and you have Charles Manson. But already two years after that, she, she's singing a very different sort of song about what Woodstock supposedly stands for. And remember, she was never there. Um, so as usual with Joni Mitchell, she's, she's much more complicated and interesting than any kind of category you try to slot her into. Um, but in particular, she's more interesting than the song Woodstock, which is not her best work in my opinion.
2: Oh, and see, I, I grew up loving this song. So, I mean, I knew I had to bring it into this episode, but I, I agree, Michael. I mean, you know, this, uh, this is a very simplistic mythology that we've got going in here. Uh, and you know, uh, I don't think it's pretending to be anything else, but, uh, I guess, you know, I, I'll, I'll I'll go ahead and ask you. I mean, you know, it wasn't just this one song, obviously, or even one recorded by, you know, Crosby, Stills, and Young, one of the great hippie bands that made Woodstock something more than another festival among festivals. So be our historian again. What cultural forces or particular events elevated Woodstock to its place of prominence in this mythology of the 60s? Or to put it another way, Why is there a Woodstock generation instead of an Altamont generation?
1: And when you phrase it that way, Nathan, it makes it very easy to answer the question, which is that Woodstock as a myth is about the baby boomers mythologizing their own generation. Altamont is not the right kind of mythology. Uh, Altamont, if you don't know, is a is a very similar festival in, I believe, San Francisco, and it famously climaxes with the Hells Angels, who are serving as security, murdering this guy Meredith Hunter, who has climbed on stage while the Rolling Stones are performing Under My Thumb. And that is a very bad end to a very idealistic decade. The fact that there isn't really violence at Woodstock is important, because it tells you that these hippie ideals, to the degree they're ideals at all... Um, hold true, whereas Altamont reveals them to be a lie. You didn't mention it, but there's also a 1971, there's that year again, concert by Jethro Tull at Red Rocks in Colorado. That show ends up being sold out and too many people show up for it. There's a big riot and the police shoot off tear gas. That's another way that the baby boomers would prefer their generation not to be remembered, I suspect. Yeah. Yeah. As for the, the uh, material conditions of the mytholo- mythologization, that's a hard word to say, um, I, I think it really begins in 1970 with the release of that Woodstock documentary, which is a very long, very famous documentary that I have not seen and yet that um, I, I you know I, I know that it it presents the image of Woodstock that we think of as Woodstock. Have you seen that documentary, Nathan?
2: I have seen parts of it. I've not watched it all the way through. But yeah. I mean, I definitely like the, the images in my mind of Woodstock come from that film. I know full well. And
1: I think that's true of almost everybody. And that, that movie comes out, you know, very soon after the, after the festival, just a year afterwards. And like I said, it's the only reason Woodstock made any money at all is because of this film. So you have 400,000 people there. Um, and I, I think probably if you ask around in the Baby Boomers, about five times that many say they were there. and then um then you have this documentary which really helps them decide what the festival means if that makes sense
2: yeah that makes a lot of sense and I, i don't know why i skipped over red rocks when i was asking you that question because that's another one that like you said i mean you know turns out very differently from woodstock right so i mean uh it is fascinating that I, you know, because I, I, I could imagine Michael an alternative mythology that renders the the hippie generation as the one who are are, I guess, resisting violent force from the authorities, to where you know Red Rocks could be a symbol for them. Altamont, obviously, I mean, is is going to be. Uh, Just uh, impossible to mythologize, I think. Yeah, there's no winner in that
1: situation. Although, you know, I I had always heard that story very differently than what apparently actually happened. I always heard it was the Hells Angels being racist, and maybe they were racist. I don't know. Meredith Hunter, I believe, was African-American. But he had a gun in his hand. I mean, he he actually was going to apparently uh, commit some harm to Mick Jagger. So it seems to me that the uh, Hells Angels were probably just doing their job. Although ha- Well, I
2: th- I think both of those can be true.
1: Yeah. 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 Can I ask some ignorant questions? Who are the Rolling Stones?
0: No, no, not that. <laughs> like like that's that's one of the few questions in which I can be like, ooh, "Ooh, I've got that one." Um, first, why did they choose Woodstock? It was like it was supposed to be somewhere else, but then they chose Woodstock. Is it is it because of uh is it it, is it because of something else yeah um
1: it was it was kind of a countercultural hub partly because dylan moved there so um okay so the first album by the band the band is called music from big pink big pink is the house they lived and rehearsed in with dylan so if you've heard of dylan's the basement tapes uh those come from the basement of this house in woodstock new york not woodstock georgia where i'm currently sitting yeah. Although I'm, I'm currently also sitting in a basement in Woodstock, so maybe maybe this will one day be just as mythologized. Ironic. But the, the concert, David, was not in Woodstock, New York. I think that's important to remember. It's called Woodstock, but it was outside of Bethel, New York. And, you know, if I were any kind of researcher, I would have looked up uh, how far apart those towns are.
2: About 40 miles.
1: Yeah. So I, that's what I thought. They, they weren't close, 40 miles is a long way. you know. That's the other side of Atlanta from where I'm sitting now. And yet, it's mm-hmm. still called Woodstock. Isn't that interesting?
2: Well, yeah. it's probably because of that connection with Dylan, I would assume. Yeah. yeah.
0: And is there any connection to uh, the name of Snoopy's small bird pal?
2: Yes, he is named after the festival. There you go. All right. I actually never knew that.
1: I learned that I did that interview with the fellow who wrote the book about Charles Schultz a few years ago. Uh-huh. I learned, I think I learned it from that book.
2: Very good. Very good. Neat. Well, David, uh, when I pitched the show to you in particular, uh, you immediately objected that if you emerged, that you emerged, pardon me, not from Woodstock, but from the constellation of movements dedicated to make sure making sure their kids wouldn't be at the next Woodstock. Uh, so, to what extent was Woodstock an emblem of what home, the homeschool movement was resisting? and to what extent had it already faded from memory by the time you and I were teenagers?
0: So this is a curious one, Um, and it's one of the situations where only, perhaps in retrospect, do you perceive uh, as a pattern things that you might not have seen as as a pattern as a child. All right? So i couldn't tell you when i first heard the term woodstock um or even knew what it what it was or what it was associated with but um all through all through growing up uh there was just a constellation of things that that were linked together and it included things like um boys need to wear shirts and they shouldn't have long hair and uh you know know, obviously i grew up you know most of my growing up was in the 80s you know with you know dare and staying off of drugs and all the rest of that um but uh sort of a a recognition of images and you know, is things like Scooby-Doo and like, okay, what is it about vans?
2: <laughs> nice. And,
0: you know, and these 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 images of of long-haired folk in vans and whatnot. And I'm like, what? Why? Why is this part of of what's forbidden? What's so bad about having long hair? And its connection with, um, by by the time I was young, you know, you know, you were you were more likely. Uh, to be hearing condemnation of rock and roll, targeting um, you know Metallica or Guns N' Roses, um, you know it was the Hell's Bells era. Um, but nonetheless, there was this uh, this kind of remnant of especially the especially the long hair associated with men. Um, kind of going so i would heard about hippies and i heard that that was a term for people who were associated with this thing called rock and roll which we didn't listen to um and and it was a long time ago and then pouring through uh because when you're homeschooled you don't get yearbooks (laughs) but we had our parents high school yearbooks and so we would dig through them and you know, my, grand, my, my, my parents graduated from high school in 1972. So looking through them, seeing the way they looked and the way that the, the kids they went to looked. And our, my parents were always... Um, my dad was a little bit wistful about high school. I think he, he really enjoyed high school and living in that time. Um, but also being kind of cagey about why people... Dressed the way they were and some of the things that they were doing and some of the photos that um might have been i don't know might have been references to drug culture or something i don't know um so a lot of it was insulated from my experience but now looking back on it i see how how the degree to which the the rearing that i got came out of my parents generation looking at what That Woodstock generation represented, and very specifically, choosing and doing the opposite kinds of things. Um, So it's it's almost as if my my rearing were uh, the negative space around Woodstock, (laughs) or you know the Yang to Woodstock's Yin, or something like that. Um, Yeah, it's. uh, uh, it, it, it must have been something that would have been talked about more explicitly, especially when they first became associated with um, uh, the Gothard movement that um, uh, that my family was part of. They must have spoken about those kinds of things much more explicitly um, when, they, uh, when they first became associated with it in um, the late 70s. But by the time I came along, um, that kind of explicit use of Woodstock as a symbol of what was being rejected wasn't wasn't there anymore. But the ghost of Woodstock was there.
2: That makes some good sense, Michael. I didn't actually prep you for this, but I'm confident you can talk ex tempore about it. Uh, to what extent was it was sort of the Jesus Rock that you know you were, you know, that you still you know uh, are famous on the internet for writing about? To what extent was it uh, resisting Woodstock? To what extent channeling Woodstock by way of the Jesus people? Uh, was it uh, a, a gravitational uh, force at all in that yeah, movement?
1: It, as you mentioned, I'm speaking extemporaneously, so I don't know if this is true or not. But um, trying to answer without doing any kind of research, I suspect what you get with the Jesus people is an attempt to redirect the positive parts of hippie culture. Um, away from the excesses that led to, you know, Altamont or Manson or Red Rocks or all, all the other kind of hangover moments of the early 70s. So, so you, you're you trying to get a... a they're, they're trying to use some of the more communal aspects of Woodstock and the surrounding culture um, to bring people to, to Christ instead, which, you know, Whatever. i have i have thoughts about that i'm not sure they're terribly relevant um and nor am i super informed about the 1970s um in in terms of that whole movement so uh you know take it all with a grain of salt
2: no that's all right like i said this just now occurred to me and i i didn't uh think about it last week when i was dreaming up show notes so uh, i'm glad you could speak a little bit extempore but uh david bouncing back to you know sort of Again, evangelical culture writ large, but especially uh, homeschool culture, I mean, for me at least, you know, growing up as a teenager and being a recent convert, it was always a tension for me because I had a sense that Vietnam was an era where America lost its way morally, but I also heard people, you know, frankly older than my parents, right? So not the so-called Woodstock generation who would get very angry at people who would say such things. So, I mean, again, you know, I'm just curious about what kinds of echoes were still reverberating, there we go, uh, in your context. I mean, that relationship between the hippie movement, Vietnam, all that kind of thing, was that even on the radar? Or were there other things that uh, took the attention?
0: It was on... Oh, it was it was a bit on the radar, um, and from again from the opposite point of view, um, I never really heard my grandmother, uh, my grandparents talk about it very much. But my best friend growing up, uh, his father was a Vietnam veteran. Um, another one of my really close friends um, from about middle school through high school, his father was also a Vietnam veteran, um, and. I heard sort of hints from from the first man, and kind of more more explicitly from the second man, what it was like to be a soldier in that period, um, and knowing the degree to which the counterculture um, not only took a a stance against uh, what you were, you know, practically doing um, in Vietnam as a soldier but took uh, a stance of of, of hostility um, towards you specifically that that towards him specifically that he had you know experienced on on visiting and returning um and that was that was what i knew about it right um i don't actually know and i'm pretty sure i i i don't, I don't know that i actually know in my family or in my circle of of friends or church anyone who saw themselves as associated with that Woodstock generation counterculture vibe at all and didn't meet anyone who was an adult who spoke of it in a positive way until I was in graduate school
2: Oh fascinating okay So
0: so for me this is you know I am I I grew up in inside of a shell of people who were even the ones who were kind of of that boomer generation i didn't i didn't know any who saw, saw themselves in that lens or continued to speak of it in in a positive way in terms of of the culture and the change that it that that it brought about um and and that You know, that that has shaped my impression too. Like, I I don't. When when I was uh, kind of towards the end of high school, um, hippie culture and hippie fashion came back around again. And I remember at that time having zero sense of connection or nostalgia for any of that. Um, And not really understanding getting the mystique at all. Um, now, you know, hmm, I like CCR. Does that count?
2: <laughs> no. <laughs> Michael says no. I And, and it's interesting, David, because, uh, again, our experiences, I, I think, you know, shed light on each other. Because for me, sort of the, for lack of a better term, you know, the, the, the tail end of the moral majority and the beginning of the religious right was one, what I would call, ideological center of gravity that was trying to lay hold of me there in the 90s. But then this counterculture, Woodstock generation, you know, anti-war was another one. And I, I remember very distinctly having a, a, a genuine sense of tension between the two of them. And it seems like for you that, that wasn't even one of your concerns during those years.
0: No, I, I I didn't know anyone who thought being a hippie was good except for people of my own generation who got caught up in the kind of the styles that were that were you know revived and marketed.
2: I got you. Know, you. Uh, I got other, you.
0: Other other than that, that that kind of airsats um, productifying of the '60s. Uh, I don't know of, I, I didn't know anybody who was, who, was, who was seriously presenting it to me as representing something that I should consider. I, yeah.
2: That's interesting. Well, Michael, uh, as far as I know, and I did a little bit of research, the uh, Woodstock 50th anniversary concert never happened. Uh, but I do want to think a little bit about an infamous Woodstock anniversary Uh, namely Woodstock 1999 in Rome, New York, still not actually in Woodstock. Uh, I remember seeing in the MTV coverage, and this might have been my last memory of watching MTV, that the high summer heat and the high prices for bottled water led to rioting, audio towers on fire, looting, even sexual assault. In my just out of college mind, this was a new sort of emblem. Thus ends the dream that a music festival has any capacity to bring peace into the world is there something to that or was it pretty much just the case that when limp biscuit gets involved everything gets ruined
1: well i mean that is certainly true but i think it does go (laughs) beyond that first a few points there were actually woodstock 10 and woodstock 20 so there was a there was a concert in 79 and one in 89 which nobody remembers um 99 is the one they remember because it's the one where everything as you say uh went south um, So it's on an, a former Air Force base in, uh, in upstate New York. And the thing about having it on a farm is that there's all sorts of plants and stuff to absorb the sunlight, whereas an Air Force base is pretty much nothing but asphalt, uh, which means when it's hot, it's real hot. Uh, you add to that the fact that this time they were very successful in making a profit. Uh, one might even say... Too successful, because there there are very few um, water fountains, and so everybody's having to buy bottled water. And apparently, the the figure I saw was four dollars for a bottle of water twenty years ago, which is insane, right? Because four you you wouldn't pay four dollars now, I would hope.
2: No, and I mean this is when minimum wage is like four twenty five an hour, right? So oh. you
1: got a you, you got a picture <laughs> a ten dollar bottle of water. Um, so yeah, that's a lot of it. Another part of it, though, is that the sexual revolution had metastasized. So you talk about sexual assaults. There were dozens of them. There were also four rapes um, that went just beyond just sexual assault. Who knows how many there were at the original Woodstock? Because I don't think that that sort of thinking was as common then. Do you know what I mean? If, If Woodstock 1969 had happened now, I think probably... We would see it as much more problematic than they did at the time, just because everybody was high on this free love uh, idea, uh, and, and the, the right, idea right. that
2: free love and Me Too don't mix.
1: Yeah, that, well, that's exactly right, and and to some extent, to a large extent, I think free love creates Me Too, and I think at Woodstock '99, what you're seeing is that happening. Uh, pe- fewer people were on acid. I really think I really think the acid has something to do with it. it it's just not a, it's not a drug that causes. Um, causes violence, from my understanding. It's a drug that gives you the illusion of unity. So, it, I mean, it makes sense that if everybody's doing the acid, although not the brown acid, as the famous announcement went. <laughs> right, uh, right.
2: <laughs> it, that, that is the moment from the film that everyone can quote, even if you've never seen the film. Yeah. <laughs> but
1: um, that, that doesn't happen at Woodstock 99. People are smoking weed, which I don't think of as being something that makes you violent, but God knows what else they're doing. Uh, it's it's just a more cynical time. It's a it's a time when the uh, the, the ideals of Woodstock '69 are just not hip or present, and so you get these nods to what was happening at the original Woodstock that are cosmetic more than anything else. So you get Wyclef John um, doing a Jimi Hendrix impersonation during his set, but. I don't know that most of the people at the festival had any kind of grandiose ideals for what their counterculture was going to be, and besides that, the counterculture had kind of become the mainstream culture. I mean, Limp Bizkit was a, a best-selling band. So what do you what do you do when you're no longer an underground movement and instead you're just a bunch of oversexed, drugged up, twenty somethings? converging on a place that's too hot without any kind of real material comforts it's a disaster so the the whole place gets set on fire during the red hot chili peppers set when they're they're uh covering the uh the Jimi hendrix song fire and then um (laughs) yeah because uh,
0: irony is a lie right
1: Right. So I mean it's a it's a disaster. There I I wish they'd make a documentary about that cuz I wonder I wonder what it was like to be one of the other groups uh at that festival. And unless lest we forget, it wasn't all hard rock groups. I mean, Sheryl Crow played, Jewel played, Alanis Morissette played.
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, this was this was the big event for Generation X.
1: Yeah. For all that says about Generation X.
2: <laughs> yeah, we suck. But I, I really, I really think that it's helpful to think of Woodstock
1: '99 as Woodstock '69 metastasized. That
2: that
1: if it hadn't been so early in the counterculture in 1969, I think it probably would have ended up very similarly. But thirty years of of sex, drugs, and rock and roll, you know, you you move from David Crosby to Fred Durst.
2: Oh gosh, yeah, that's that's a very stark way to see it. Uh, David, do you have any memory of, of hearing about Woodstock 99?
0: I was in college then. I remember hearing that it was happening, and I probably rolled my eyes and didn't think about it again. You know, I it's not something that I would have had any interest in doing, and I, I don't know, I standing outside and listening to music wasn't something I'd do if it was local.
1: And if it was music you liked.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Like, (laughs) like I, I still would not go like, I can't imagine any kind of music right now that would make me stand outside in the summer.
1: I I just can't get over those poor women who are raped at this festival. Gang raped, I believe in some cases, it it just, it's maybe awesome. maybe the shocker is that it doesn't happen more often at those festivals but it doesn't seem to maybe they have adequate security I, I don't know but can I just can't imagine going to that festival thinking you were going to have a good time and having what I assume is the worst thing that will ever happen to you happen to you
2: yeah yeah
1: also Limp Bizkit does suck
2: yeah absolutely I'm, I'm... <laughs> <laughs> I, that that was a beach ball I lobbed your way, Michael, so uh, you're welcome. Yeah. Uh, David, uh, it's time to talk about how old I'm getting. Uh, when I was growing <laughs> up, I could still think of the baby boomers as the people who invented the generation gap, the people who tried to reinvent themselves and reinvent their world. Uh, now, of course, everything wrong with the world seems to be fault, the fault of the boomers, and it's proven easy enough to cast them as the set in their ways geezers who uh resist change in the world uh does that shift reflect the simple truth that everyone has to take a turn at being the old folks or does something different happen when an age cohort gets defined one way young the woodstock generation and then gets dragged kicking and screaming into the much loathed those old people role
0: i mean probably old a bit from column A and some more from column B. There's a way in which young folk have always been young folk, but in my completely unsystematic observations about pop culture before uh, the the Woodstock generation. Um, Folks knew that you know when you were young, you had fun in the way that young folks do, and then you grow up and you become a grown-up, and the world belongs to the grown-ups, and popular entertainment grows belongs to the grown-ups. Um, and then comes uh, comes the the counterculture, the the Woodstock generation, the folks who are now the baby boomers, and this uh, along. You've got, you've got young folk who keep wanting to insist on um, the authenticity of the youth that they were part of. Um, like, Yes, there are people who wanted to remain you know, young and beautiful and so forth in the 50s and in the 40s and, and all the rest of it. But you know, I don't see in those eras the same kind of cult of youth that you see coming out of uh, the late 60s counterculture. Um, And that, I think, has maybe a lot to do with it, is that youth at the time, don't trust anyone over 30, um, youth at the time became synonymous with uh, uh, an authenticity that comes from not yet being sold out and integrated into the machine, as the old folk were. Um, And if if that sticks with you if that remains then there's some part of you that wants to that wants to continue to be seen as the young and the edgy and the not integrated um but that that doesn't that that look doesn't really sell so much anymore when you know you're a 70 year old um you know tenured endowed chair who you know keeps acting and talking as if They're not establishment. Um, So it is something that age does to people, probably, but I I think there is something special here because this particular generation made a fetish and an idol of their mere youth in association with their ideals that they didn't have with the generation that came before them. Is that, is that sell?
2: So? I think so, Michael. What would you add? That it's gotten even worse to some
1: extent. I I think you you talk about pop culture being for teenagers. I think pop culture nowadays, especially pop music, largely seems to be aimed at some sort of hypersexualized eleven-year-old.
0: Yes. Ugh.
2: I think that's about right. I think that's about right. Well, here at the end, guys, I want to link this conversation uh, up with something theological, and I'm going to give each of you as much latitude as you want. Uh, What is there to say theologically about the event, the legend, the music, the hippies, anything else as we wrap things up? Uh, Michael, you start, but stay away from that brown acid.
1: Yeah, I will. Um, (laughs) uh, The music's pretty good. I I can't stand Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young. But um, I, I think it's it's hard to deny the music of the late '60s. Whatever it was, there was something going on that resulted in some really high quality pop music being made. So I don't want to I don't want to dismiss that. I baby boomer self mythologizing is insufferable to me. Um, but to some extent, they earned a little bit of a right to self mythologize uh, by the quality of that work. I am interested in the trajectory of the baby boomers, however. Um, going from the late 60s to the late 80s um, when they suddenly became the, uh, the establishment, uh, by and large. The, the hippies, not all of them, obviously, but many of them turn into yuppies and then they turn into today's Trump voter. And that's fascinating to me because you have this generation that defines itself based on these ideals that are absurd and based on a, I would say, a faulty metaphysics uh, and then they, they slowly codify into their exact opposite. I don't know what to do with that other than to say that the, the spirituality of that era was so shallow that it not only leads to things like Charles Manson, but also to things like uh, Wall Street and Donald J. Trump.
0: I don't know that I, that I necessarily am disagreeing with you but part of that part of that read Michael I think maybe makes the spread of, of identification with the counterculture within that generation maybe broader than it actually was.
1: Yes, that's that's probably fair. That um, I'm I'm blaming one generation for two different things.
0: Cuz you know that that generation also had my parents and their friends and you know i told you like i I don't think i grew up in a hole in the ground with you know the only the only 40 adults my parents age who didn't think well about woodstock um you know there probably was another part of that generation that just didn't see itself in any of those things um but no doubt in order for um in order for events in our culture to have happened the way it was some people who were associated with that had to become their opposites and yeah
1: the, the just the self-absorption of that generation people mock the millennials a lot for being self-absorbed but even the spirituality of the baby boomers is very much focused on privilege and comfort i i just i i have very little tolerance for it yeah the two people I like best from that era are Joni Mitchell and the, the writer Joan Didion, who I think she's a little bit older than that generation and saw right through it. Yeah, I would recommend people read the Joan Didion essay Slouching Towards Bethlehem, where she where she visits Haight Ashbury, And again, she's a little bit uh, older than the people she's writing about. But it's a really terrifying presentation of the counterculture as this group of kids who don't know what they're talking about They've lost their way, but they're talking as if they did know that they were talking about. I think that's probably the most perceptive contemporary portrait of uh, of the generation that gave us Woodstock. David,
2: what would you uh, point to? Just the presence
0: of uh, on on among the the many the many acts the many sets um, during that festival. Um, it began with. Uh, a, a Hindu religious teacher. Um, uh, not even sure if I'm going to pronounce his right his name right. Um, Swami Sachidananda. Um, that was my most game effort. And then um, one of the one of the sets on the earlier days was uh, Ravi Shankar. So that uh, that association of of that fascination that you see in some parts of the counterculture with Indian religion and Indian culture. Um, you know, the number of folks from that generation who, who um, Woodstock was not their pilgrimage site, but India was, um, who, who went and uh, became part of communities studying under, under gurus. Um, the rise of, of transcendental meditation and yoga as parts of that um uh, as, as parts of that that the counterculture's uh, religious expression that then becomes um, a product and a commodity through the 80s and that that counterculture fascination with um, uh, the religious traditions of India then becomes products that are touted for... Um, you know, dealing with stress as you are, you know, as you're in your successful business job, or um, you know, self improvement, you know, those kinds of things. But there's uh, there was something there. Somebody the they they were crying out for something spiritual and something something real, and the exotically different. Um, traditions of India were an attractive part of that. But you talked about this earlier, Michael. You also have uh, the Jesus Movement um, that I think also saw that same hunger. Um, You know, uh, behind... I I think if we want to think in charitable ways about uh, this generation and even what this event means to them... um, You know, looking looking at the the genuine hungers in the human soul, um, the desires to to find those hungers uh, fed in some kind of spiritual devotion, some kind of beauty, some kind of art. Um, uh, You know, maybe we don't think that Woodstock necessarily it lives up to its myth, or that its generation lived up to even the ideals they professed, professed as part of the myth. Um, but the, the itches that it scratched and the hungers that it manifested um, are things that uh, I think point in noble directions.
2: And I would just add that uh, I know that uh, Woodstock is you know, not by any means the first rock and roll festival, and it's certainly not the last rock and roll festival, but it is, like I said, you know, something that for reasons that Michael narrated and that we've discussed today, Uh, Something that has taken on a sort of mythological character. And what fascinates me is that it happened so fast after the event. Uh, You know, the capacity for, as Michael noted, a a failed music festival uh, to become its own myth that fast really does fascinate me. And I think that it has something to do with, you know, uh, the era of mass telecommunication, recorded music, music stores, things like that. It also has something to do, like David just said, with uh, the sense that uh, spirituality uh, was now overtaking religion. And it, it, it's interesting because, because this, is, this is a locus of mythology in my imagination. Uh, Woodstock is what I think of when I hear youth minister types say that, you know, Jesus doesn't want rela- religion, he wants relationship. Uh, I know that one didn't cause the other in any straight line form but it's definitely something where the ripples are making things happen so uh it remains interesting to me and I'm glad uh you guys were willing to humor me and and talk about it a little bit uh but we're about out of time today so uh what are we talking about next week
1: Well we're going to be reading an essay by Gabriel Marcel called uh Orthodoxy versus Conformism uh it's if, if you have access to a library, there's a version of it in his collection called Creative Fidelity. But if you don't, I'm going to translate a version and stick it on our website uh, because the, the English language translation is not available online and is uh, copyrighted. So that's what we're going to do. I'll uh, post a note on the, uh, on the Facebook site when I've got it up and everybody can read it.
2: Very good, very good. Well, listeners, until then... Uh, you can find us on christianhumanist.org on Facebook. Uh, you can subscribe, well, you've probably already subscribed, but if you haven't, you can subscribe on Stitcher or iTunes. Uh, we always appreciate if you can leave reviews for us as well in those places. The Christian Humanist podcast is part of the Christian Humanist radio network. Our press liaison is Christian Philippic. Michael does our editing. And I am Nathan Gilmore in behalf of Michael and of David Grubbs saying, Let your sins be strong. Let your faith be stronger.